Greetings from the north, citizens of Earth, welcome. Folks, you better sit down for this one. See, this episode was originally intended as mere woo, though qualified with science. But as Lady Fortuna would have it, it certainly went off the road and over the cliff into the existential abyss. Much due to the conversational chemistry with this my first time guest. And before we knew it, we were cracking open the fabric of existence beholding directly behind the divine curtain. Which, as you will learn, may not happen without consequences. Part 1 keeps hammering at the gates of the gods, and in part 2 it cracks open. But let's take comfort in Maestro Leonard Cohen's words. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And who is the keymaker for today's seance? None other than best-selling author, thinker and researcher Anthony Peake. He grew up near Liverpool, UK and was educated at Warwick University from 73 to 76 with a dual honours bachelor in sociology and history, specialising in sociology of religion, sociology of language and the art of the Italian Renaissance, choosing courses that would accommodate his wide interests. He then went on to the London School of Economics and Political Science between 76 and 77, where he studied social science as well as labor law, human resource management and services, with a postgraduate in HRM and master in economics. This course in management led him away from his calling as a writer and into a career as a manager in various UK businesses. But his interest in the esoteric continued with a growing fascination for quantum physics and neurology developing over the years. During this mundane career, he's been reward consulant for Chase Devere, Tupe consulant for Rygate and Banstead Borough Consul, HR consultant for R&B Housing Limited, compensation and benefits consultant for Damuva UK Limited, compensation and benefits consultant and later HR manager for Nuffield Health, reward consultant for Shop Direct, HR consultant for Sun Chemical, compensation and benefits manager for Riverside, HR and CNB consultant for Novus Scareman Group, reward analyst for EDF, reward consultant for Wimbledon Championships, reward analyst for Nelsons, reward consultant for the National Gallery, international reward consultant for the Body Shop, and senior manager for Superdrug. His life changed in 2000 when circumstances allowed him to a sabbatical year from business career and decided to invest his experience, studies and research as an author, leading to his first book, which was a distillation of quantum physics, neurology, ancient myths, altered states of consciousness and the mystery of death, 
with the help of Professor Bruce Grayson. A paper based upon Peake's hypothesis appeared in the 04 edition of the Journal of Near-Death Studies, the academic periodical of the International Association of Near-Death Studies. His book, Cheating the Ferryman, offer a radical new and scientifically based explanation for such phenomena as near-death experience, déjà vu, precognition, angelic encounters, doppelgangers, and many other mysteries of consciousness. He has now been published in every major European language and is currently at his 12th book. Anthony Peake was awarded the prize Book of the Year from British Medical Association of Psychiatrics. He's also been admitted as member of Institute of Noetic Sciences, the Scientific and Medical Network, International Association of Near-Death Studies, and the Society for Psychic Research. He's been interviewed by innumerable podcasts, radio stations and magazines across the world and appeared on British television discussing the explanatory power of his ideas. In 2009, he began a regular slot on BBC Radio Merseyside. He has also a reputation as an engaging and dynamic public speaker, having presented over 100 lectures across Europe and the USA. In 2009, he was speaker at a prestigious platform event at the National Theatre in London, and two weeks later he presented a lecture to over 300 people in Manhattan, New York. In turn, Anthony has made contact with a handful of the world's leading experts working in the areas of science central to his hypothesis. For this purpose, he has created a very active forum open to all and seeking contributions from individuals and organizations interested in assisting to develop his hypothesis, which we today examine and use as our key to the cosmic kingdom. Welcome to the forum, Anthony. Absolutely delighted to be on your show, Al. And twice as delighted to have you. You see, like I told you before we started here, you are one of those chaps who's somehow gone under my radar. And it's not a, a big deal if it wasn't for the fact that, one, you've been on all my friends' shows, <laughs> and two, your work is right up my alley. And in fact, browsing through your books here... Gnostics, um, I'd like to talk with you about the Labyrinth of Time, so I may become a nemesis to you, nagging to get you back after this (laughs) (laughs) for more shows (laughs) on other books. It's it's always delightful to hear. But today we're going to take on um, a very interesting, I mean, this topic I suspect will appeal across everything and anything and everyone. Because it's so, it's kind of universal in a way, and it reaches, it has tentacles into every kind of field of interest. So today, we take on the hidden universe. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, and and the full title of the book, though, is The Hidden Universe, an investigation into non-human intelligences. Yes. Uh, And I believe that's your latest book? It is indeed, yes. Yeah. Yes, it came out like Christmas 18 months ago. Okay, because I saw you your Watkins um, lecture. Mm-hmm. So um, 
that's that's how I discovered you. I, I occasionally check into Watkins to scout for new guests. Uh, they are a tad too new age for me. They didn't always used to be. You know, uh, my yeah. man. I had a mentor in England. He's dead now, mm-hmm. and uh, he was a personal friend of Watkins. Oh. You know, the chap who actually established the shop. Oh, really? Ah, yes. Interesting. And in the old days, you know, Atlantis Bookshop. Yes. During World War Two, he was he was sitting. Uh, he said, "We went to Atlantis Bookshop." I don't believe Watkins was open then, but mm. uh, we went there and then we went down into the basement and there they had meditations and kind of invocations against the war or against really? invasion. Inv- yeah, while bombs were <laughs> falling in London. Wow. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he died, bless him. He died um, in who, who, What was his name? Do you know what his name is? He's not going to be famous. He never wrote books. He, he knew famous people like... Um, um, oh, what's uh, Future Science? Do you know that guy? Um, uh, Alvin, no, no, no. I was thinking Alvin Toffler. No. No, he's a very or, an rings, author. Yeah, he's a Brit. It rings a bell. It rings a bell. Future Science. Yeah, I should know that. He's been to, on coast to coast. And, uh, Maurice Cotterell. Name rings a bell, but that's as far as it goes. Oh, how interesting. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, and, and he also knew, well, old timers, but this chap was was uh, esoteric, not into UFOs and stuff like that. He was mm. into mystery schools. So Yeah, because I, I agree with you totally. I mean, the thing is, I would not be on some of these new age things because I can't stand them. But effectively, yeah. it's a level of exposure and exactly. you, know, you, you have to go with it. But I'm getting less and less patient with them. I tend to sort of bite back a lot more right. now when they start talking rubbish. Yeah, yeah. But effectively, you know, some of the loony tunes things that these, the which when you're associated with the previous guests and you're trying to do the science and the logic and yeah. the intellectual side of it and the esoteric side of it, and you've got these people believing the most inherent nonsense, you know. And it, yeah. uh, so it, it comes with the territory, you know. It does, sadly. Yeah, it's unavoidable. But... Um, as for us today, um, it's so interesting that you call these things egregores. I have uh, in mind to discuss that with you. Mm. Uh, because coming from a more esoteric tradition, I have my own um, interpretation of, of that uh, have term. You, have you read the Mark Stavish book on uh, that? I know. Uh, you do, because yeah, Mark and I... We both ha- fact- have a background in, in Armork. I'm not there anymore. Oh, right. Interesting. Just so that said. But I used to write under pseudonym. So I've had had some discussions with him about Egregoris. I think Mark does a wonderful job because who owned that term in the public? Not in Esoterica, but in public before him. That mm-hmm. was more these Crowley people. Mm-hmm. And they have a very limited, narrow view of the definition of egregores, I think, whereas the more traditional, especially the Greco-Egyptian um, interpretation of that word is, is much better. Totally. But we'll see. You, you get to say your piece, but okay. I interpret your take on it actually more in line with the magical uh, paradigm. So that will be interesting to flush out and see. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah. That is really nice to hear. Mm. But since you're a first-time guest, Anthony, let's just start with the basics. How how, how did you become Vogue, as a popular word is now, term Vogue, to this? <laughs> well, I suppose it's something that's always intrigued me ever since my early teenage years has been the idea that I'm a sentient something that's perceiving something. And... When I was 12 years of age, I had a fairly serious bout of double pneumonia. And while I was in the crisis state, 
I had a series of very profound hallucinations, clearly stimulated by the crisis of pneumonia. Um, mm. But I, even at my 12-year-old stage, I was just fascinated by exactly what was going on, why it was that my brain was able to project into external reality things that were not out there. And of course, we know the definition of hallucination is a, a visual or an aural stimuli, stimuli that is only shared with you. Mm. And I thought, what is going on here? So when I recovered, I there was a wonderful part series that coincidentally in the UK came out way back 1966, this is now. And there was a part series called Man, Myth and Magic. And Man, Myth and Magic was this incredible encyclopedia, part work came out on a weekly basis about man, myth, and magic. And it gave me a fantastic introduction, both to esoteric traditions, um, mythology, um, and various other areas. And indeed, it so intrigued me that when I had the opportunity to go to university, what, a few years later, seven or eight years later, seven years later, something like that, I chose to do sociology and history specifically uh, how, how did you get sociology and history from fever fantasies right because i'd i was fascinated by the historical aspects of mm, mm. these belief systems where did they come from you know from ancient greek times onwards what, what was the genesis of the mystical tradition right and even at that early stage i was quite fascinated by the concept of gnosticism and how gnosticism morphed into various belief systems both within the abrahamic religions such as um the sufis and uh the christian gnostics also the elements of the kabbalah and it seemed that there was this fascinating esoteric tradition out there but it needed to be analyzed in a historical perspective because i was then f intrigued by the way in which mysticism influenced renaissance art mm. uh the way it influenced the philosophy of the period mm. And moving forward, how it then morphed into alchemy, it morphed into the embryonic sciences. And on top of that, I then became interested in both the, the strange period of time during the, um, the Thirty Years' War in Germany and in Central Europe, when there were a lot of great thinkers that came up after the Reformation when you had esoteric traditions starting up there as well. Um, and then moving on then to finally the, the sects that came up in the 19th and early 20th centuries, which also interested me. So there was the historical aspects, but of course there was also the sociological aspects of these. You know, what, what, why did certain societies develop these belief systems when they did? And the course in sociology and history at the University of Warwick was ideal for me. Mm. And... There, from then onwards, it then gave me the academic rigor as a historian to analyze these in an objective way and using, you know, fairly, fairly structured historical methods of interpretation as well. And this is what I've done in my writing subsequently. Hmm. It's impressive that these fields of, I mean, today, listing those fields of interest is almost become mainstream. But... You had this in the 70s, if I'm right. Correct. Well, actually started up in the mid-60s, really. And that's so early. And, and isn't it a pain that, if you look back, 
how few sources you had access to back then oh, compared to today <laughs> totally i remember i remember struggled struggling to get hold of a copy of the malus maleficorum <laughs> and right, right, i couldn't right. find one anywhere and i eventually did source a copy and when i was going to bookshops asking for the malus maleficorum yeah. people were looking at me as if i was completely and utterly insane yeah. you know what what is it well it was bitten by two and now you can get it in my local new age shop just so you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, written by two Dominican monks, you know, Sprengler and I can't remember the other guy's name. Yeah. But on top of that, I, I was also interested in UFOs, but also again from the sociological aspects. Yeah. It's always intrigued me what's going on between the interface between consciousness and what is out there. Oh, but then surely you must have loved Jacques Vallée, who was one of the few oh, voices okay. then who had that perspective. Oh, totally. Valet was like a, a breath of fresh air yeah. in so many ways. His book, Passport to Magonia, was was my Bible. Yeah. My uh, favorite Valet book uh, from that time is Messengers of Deception. I oh, think yes. He does a brilliant analysis of these things, kind of, I wouldn't say debunking, but kind of nuancing the narrative about a little green man from outer space, right? Because he, he just shows you yes. this can't be the thing. It can't be the whole thing, at least. And he was so before his time. And the other the other writer that really I related to in those days was John Keel. Mm. And his his various books, all of which I found powerfully interesting because they were taking very much the approach that whatever these entities are, they are far more complex than the the the, ter- the the standard North American analysis of the extraterrestrial yeah. hypothesis. Yeah. You know, they were taking it so much. And of course, how Valley was particularly interesting to me because he chose to use the term Magonia. And again, I'd come across the concept of Magonia. And the term Invisible College. And the Invisible College. Yes, that's another wonderful book he wrote. Absolutely. Yeah, but the term, I mean, he's using that term in this regard. That's so um, revolutionary. Oh, yeah. And it is the way in which you realize that the word occult, you know, hidden, you know, it is it is exactly what really shook my tree. And it was really wonderful when I got to university because I found a group of fellow travelers because there are so few of us in those days they we were so rare mm. whereas now that every tom dick and harry is involved in this but it was unusual and when i moved to london i did i did my postgraduate at the london school of economics and it was wonderful there to discover the great bookshops in london that followed up this esoteric tradition like Watkins and mm. um, various other books. And there was a wonderful bookshop, and I can't remember the name of it, that was based in Kensington, um, which was the only place I could find where you could get Flying Saucer Review. Um, mm. But it meant that you were in this kind of almost hidden hidden college almost again. Yeah. You know, is this people related to you or they didn't. And when you found fellow travelers along this route – you became friends for life. Yeah. I mean, there's one guy I'm still a friend with now, an American guy that I met my first year at university and we're still friends now. And he's one of the few people that I can talk like I suspect we're going to be talking over the next few hours mm. about deeply interesting subjects that you can bounce off somebody yeah. and really enjoy. Yeah. 
Uh, no, I, I have a ritual. Every time I'm in London, I go to Watkins and Atlantis Bookshop just to... I mean, in the old days, it meant something. Mm. Today, people don't even read physical books anymore. But it's, like I say, it's just a ritual. It's just to feel now I'm... It's like going to British Museum. Now I'm in London. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, 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 Watkins, Watkins books has always been a ritual to me. Yeah. And what really delights me now, and it, it's wonderful every time I do it, they now recognize me in there because they know who I am. Mm. And it's always, oh, I see, oh, that's Anthony Peake over there. And I see the, the, the guys or the people in the shop pointing at me. <laughs> and, and that is just so wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to say, uh, you, you have a wonderful uh, lecture there that people can find online. I've done three of those, actually. Um, mm. You know, and yes, they, they, um, there's a wonderful, cozy atmosphere when you do those talks in there as well. Um, it's usually sort of cold winter's days. Mm. And there's something about Cecil Court yeah, yeah, yeah. that adds to the, the ambience, doesn't exactly. it? You know, they're all esoteric bookshops and old prints and everything else as well. My, my endorphin spikes when I see the Cecil Court metro <laughs> sign. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> How many it times? Haven't I? But but that's the thing. So you have a lecture there, even about what we're going to talk about today. So uh, recommend people to go check it out. One more thing about your bio before we move on to the subject at hand. Okay. And kudos to you for this. I noticed that you're a member of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. How did that come about? Um, that was many years ago, um, and what they were doing really quite intrigued me. Um, they were, again, taking a very interesting approach to extraordinary experiences, which I really liked. And um, to my delight, I, I have got an open invitation to speak there if I'm ever over in California, together with um, being able to speak at uh, the Esselin Institute as well, which is really nice things to be able to do. But it's they take the science, and I always use as my starting point the science. Um, I very much am of the philosophy of the, the old statement by the great Italian skeptic Marce Marcello Trulli. Mm. When he said extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs. And of course, again, it is great frustration when people call that the Sargon statement and claiming it was Carl Sargon that came up with that, which it wasn't, you know. I actually disagree with that statement. I think it's an unscientific statement. Because it's either you have evidence for something or you don't. Mm -hmm. It's changing the goalpost and demanding extra evidence for certain things just because my paradigm isn't used to it or can't handle it is unscientific. Very good point. If you ask a Bushman about a basic thing that's true for us, if he says, no, I won't accept it, I need extraordinary evidence for it. Yes. You see, it's yeah. just because of my limited paradigm. So I hate that expression, especially in the words of uh, Carl Sagan and his, you know, his band of sectarian skeptics. You so, know, I never looked at it that way. It's a very good point. It's a very good point. Yeah. So it's very hard to go outside of ourselves. Uh, if anyone can do it, it should be people like you. But, you know, to to break out of the zeitgeist, break yes. out of the limiting beliefs that we have, not because of our personality or, or education or anything, just because of the time and place we live in. Well, it is, isn't it? You go back to the theory of scientific revolutions, Thomas Kuhn, you know. Yeah. It, clearly, we are trapped within our expectations of what science should tell us and we are trapped within the, whatever paradigm we're trapped within yeah. because it really gauges the way we perceive information 
Mm. And anybody who reads the works of people like Thomas Kuhn will realize that this is very much the case. Indeed. And you will hear today this case also being relevant in the topic. Uh, I think we should start because I loved, uh, maybe it was just the way they edited it, but at the Watkins lecture, you started with the story of your mother. Mm. Could we start there? Oh, absolutely, because this is extraordinary and it has and it spun off into so many other areas for me. What took place was my mother way back um, many years ago lost her eye with malignant melanoma. And as she got into her 80s, she started to develop glaucoma in her good eye Mm. or her remaining eye, which meant effectively she was very partially sighted. Mm. Now, I was brought up in a village called Bromber Pool, which is a a small village built in association with a local factory up on Merseyside near the great city of Liverpool. And one evening, her and my aunt, my father's sister, both of whom were widows, were, um, were walking onto the village And my aunt stopped to tie her shoelace. And as my aunt stopped to tie her shoelace, my mother, my mother was drawn to what she subsequently later that evening, when she phoned me up, explained what she saw was a smoke ring over the local one of the, 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 the empty local factories. And she described how the smoke ring moved around and started to spin and then shot off towards North Wales at great speed. And she turned around to me, she said, Tony, what did I see there? And I said, well, possibly it is something to do. Maybe it was an aircraft coming in to speak airport, possibly that you'd misinterpreted. But really, mum, I wouldn't worry about it. And I left it at that. Interesting as a aside, aside to this, and this is where it gets very interesting when we talk about theories such as the writings of Jacques Vallée and Eric Houlet, uh, the, the, the French parapsychologist, ufologist as well, mm-hmm. is that that uh, I was subsequently contacted by a friend of mine uh, on, on Facebook, and she she actually saw the object. She was on a bus nearby, and she saw the object fly over, as did a group of people on the local on the bus. So clearly, whatever it was, it was in external three dimensional space as well. So mm. this is where it gets rather curious. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, and I can't remember the time scales, but, you know, it was, it was some a short period afterwards. One morning, my mother phones me up and she's in a state of hysterics. And I said, what's the problem, mum? And she said, I'm really frightened. You know, I live alone. I'm a widow. And she said, something happened last night that I really cannot explain. And I said, well, what was it, mum? And she said, well, I woke up in the middle of the night and I found I couldn't move. Now, immediately as soon as she described this, I realized that she was in a state of sleep paralysis. Mm. Now, sleep paralysis is when the body effectively stops the limbs from moving in order so you don't damage yourself when you when you're dreaming and you sort of start your limbs start to copy the things you're doing in the dream. So understand the, the, the the neurology of this and why this takes place. Yeah. It's a, it's a well-known phenomenon. It is. Mm. But then she said that she, she would look towards the doorway and she noticed that the door to her bedroom was open. And she said, I never leave my door open. I always close it. And it was open. Mm. And then she watched in absolute horror as as she described it, three spindly fingers came round the edge of the door and this entity popped its head round and looked at her 
And she described it, and the description still sends shivers down my spine. She said it had huge, huge insectoid eyes. It had two holes for a nose and a slit for a mouth. And it saw me, and it blinked, and it dodged back. She mm. said it knew I'd seen it. Mm. She then goes into sleep state and clearly she was in some of hip, form of hypnagogic or hypnopompic state at the time which we can touch on later mm. and she wakes up and she said what did i see now what is important here is that my mother didn't know anything about ufos or greys mm. so it's not as if she was regurgitating something that she had subliminally seen it's not as if i had a copy of whitley streber's communion and she'd right. seen that cover for instance it, it, it's not a psychological placebo going on no that's for sure absolutely mm. and what then peculiarly happened was that a few weeks later i was at home with her and she turned around out of the blue and she said the children have stopped singing. And I said, what children? And she said, the children that follow me round when I'm shopping and are now in my house. And I thought initially that the children of the village were coming in to our yeah. house. <laughs> but she said, they're not really children. They're little people. Oh, my God. And she, said, and she said, they never really speak to me, but they smile and they sing. And I said, what kind of thing? She said, well, it's this kind of high-pitched noise or sometimes a humming noise. They hum to me. And then she turned around and she said, but they're not as friendly as the old man in the kitchen. And I said, right. And she said, yes, he's very friendly. He always smiles and nods at me. Now, I knew enough about the development of Alzheimer's disease from my own research to realize what was taking place as my mother was developing something called Charles Bonnet syndrome, oh. which is a precursor of Alzheimer's. Yeah, let me interject here, because okay. up to this point, before she had these traits, because now she's talking about it as a matter of fact. Correct. Like it's no big deal, it's her, her everyday life. But mm. uh, as I understand how you describe her previous to this, it it wouldn't have been, it would have been a big deal for her, right? Oh, totally. You know, you imagine that, you know, the idea that children were in the house and yeah. an elderly gentleman, she would have really been upset about that. Yeah. But it was, yeah, it was so matter of fact. It was almost as if she brought it up in passing, you know, as if it but, was. But the, the dream paralysis was before she developed this, right? Correct. Correct. Okay, and, then, and then I subsequently got the diagnosis uh, and ultimately she died of, um, of, of uh, I'm so uh, sorry. Alzheimer's as well. Yeah. No, it's one of those things. She was in her mid 90s, so she'd had a long life. Oh, OK. But it's still a horrible way to go. Oh, totally. But to go on. Yeah. So then this really quite intrigued me, you know, the idea of what this imagery was. Now, because I've been involved in ufology and interested in the whole thing for so many years the description came as no surprise to me but with what did come as a surprise to me when i started to subsequently research and i discovered back in 2015 i think it was there were a series of caves discovered in northern india and these caves had not been open for 10,000 years mm. and inside they discovered cave paintings uh, paleo, I don't know whether it was Paleolithic or Neolithic, but they were cave paintings. Mm -hmm. And the cave paintings depicted entities that looked exactly the same as what my mother had seen. Mm. Then on top of that, there are a group of cave paintings. It's something called the Junction Shelter in the Drakensberg Mountains in South Africa that is described that are described by um Graham Hancock in his book Supernatural. And in that he describes the entities 
on something called the bridge section, which is one of the paintings down there. And again, they're the same entities. So clearly, whatever this is, it's some form of archetype. Now, if yeah. we look back then to the paintings of, say, uh, Awas with Alistair Crowley mm. um, and the entities that were being manifested at that time, Awas does not have such large eyes, as I recall, but nevertheless a similar shaped head. So there seems to be some yeah. kind of almost Jungian archetype. And small mouth. And that's, a small mouth. Yeah. As if it's some form of Jungian archetype that's deeply subliminally linked to us. It's far more complex than just aliens traveling from, from Z to Z, uh, mm. you know, from Alpha Centauri or whatever. Mm. It's more than that. Mm. Um, I really am personal in my shows, as my audience can confirm, but I'm going to make an exception now because of the story of your mother. And I think this, this will intrigue you. Okay. My grandfather, he was a miner. So he was very down to earth, born in Virgo for the astrologers out there. And he was completely agnostic or atheist. Back in that day, you were either, if you were, usually if you were religious, you were conservative, but then you were a traitor to the workers. <laughs> and he swear, he always told this story. Nobody in the family believed him. I don't know why, because he never, he, were, he was a very, he wasn't sad, but he was very serious, rarely joked, always down to earth. I never heard him tell any, uh, uh, not lies, what you call it when you, like never, never any jesting stories at all. And he swore to the day he died that mm -hmm. when he was a child uh, about 12 years old he and his mother had to walk for hours because they couldn't uh, because his father was sick and they couldn't uh, shop in the local store they were out of credit so they had to walk for hours and this is in a more remote place it's a mine right so it's in nature and they had to in the western coast of Norway they had to walk through forest area I think he was maybe 10, okay. something like that. They were walking and then at the side of the road from the ditch or whatever you call it, uh, came up two small, and I don't know if you know Norwegian folklore, we have a lot of um, creatures in our myths. Uh, I was thinking kobolds and things, yeah. Yeah, we call them Nissa, for example. Okay. And two small creatures... Uh, dressed in these traditional Norwegian customs that Nisses would have, like a cap, uh, like, you know, the, the Elusian cap? No, I mean, the Phrygian cap. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they said, hoo, 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 hoo. And he thought they were children first, but then he looked closer and he saw that they had features of old men. And he said, look, mother, look. And, and she said, no, no, move on. Nothing to see here. Kind of that kind of attitude. <laughs> He was perplexed by her reaction. Uh, they walked a little further and there they popped up again. That's when he really got shocked because for them to get to that point, they would have to go up on their feet and then run along to get ahead again, right? Mm. But they didn't. They just popped up and then down again. And they just said the same thing, this weird laugh. And uh, she she just dis uh, disregarded the whole thing. Like... Uh, he, he was unsure in his memory if she dismissed 
that there was anything or that she just dismissed him giving attention to it. He, he was more to the latter, indicating that she somehow was familiar with this but didn't want to relate to it. I'm thinking this is my interpretation. Mm. Mm. And so because of this story, I've always been open-minded because I know this is honest from his side and I know he had some kind of experience and I know that the way he describes it although of course the mechanism of it can be completely different but it appears in like this mytho-religious or magical paradigm to him who is who is a child yes but who is not religious at all and uh, growing up in hard you know it was about building the country and everything so I think this is right up the alley of what you're talking about here. This mm. it, it has to be an archetype that is independent of what your mind already has been fed of interpretations and descriptions. The only thing you could say that he had was Norwegian myths and fairy tales mm. as a child. That's the only thing formating any images or expectations. But remember, first he thought it was just two kids. Mm. So he didn't expect it to be anything paranormal. I don't know if we hear these stories anymore, but in the old days, there were many stories like this, at least in our country. Well, funnily enough, um, one of my people that I contacted regarding seeing entities such as these is a lady called Susan Demeter, who is a Canadian researcher who now lives in, in Italy, northern Italy. And she was, she had been collecting tales of entity encounters in Canada for many years. And a lot of her encounters, or people who'd contacted her, very similar again, mm. contact with the small people, the, these beings that seem to share our world with us are in some way directly related to us and in some way are almost created by us. And this is almost this kind of symbiotic feedback system whereby they need us and we need them. Now, I'm very intrigued about this with your with your grandfather because one could argue that he was involved in another phenomenon known as quasi-corporal companions, which a guy called Halliwell wrote a book about a few years ago, quasi-corporal companions. Mm -hmm. And, of course, these are what children see, you know, the idea that children see little people, they – it seems that the the interface between the realities are more open for young children, as they are with elderly people like my mother. Mm. And I would argue that I think that we can possibly trace this neurologically in that for elderly people, when they are coming down with Alzheimer's or related illnesses, what is taking place is the amyloid plaques, which are the, the structures in the brain that the, the um, Alzheimer's causes – they destroy structures in the neurons called microtubules, and the microtubules are literally exploded by the amyloid plaques, which I argue if the brain isn't a tuner and mm. the, the brain, brain attunes to things like a radio does, these things being destroyed seems to broaden the perceptual right. abilities of the person. Now, going then back to young children, it is intriguing, and in the book I mention this, that they they it is known that the level of myelination, that is the insulation of the neurons of the brain, only really develops when the child reaches puberty. Before then, the it's almost like an electrical cable right. that doesn't have the lining round it, so it's more open to the elements, literally. 
So that's why older people and children. Correct. And I argue this. I think I'm the only writer to do this, that I make these links. Brilliant insight. Now, on top of that, there's also something else that's quite intriguing here is that young children, the corpus callosum, which is the the body, the neur- the, the the neural, the body, the the body of nerves that holds together the two uh, hemispheres of the brain, mm-hmm. is also not myelinated and it's not fully developed. So effectively, this means that young children are in effect bicameral, um, and therefore they have. Both sides of the brain are more active, but act independently of each other. And I feel that what is taking place here, and there is something called neonatalism, which is a known neurological factor. And it's really quite intriguing. And it links in with my first book is The Life After Death, because if you look at how an elderly person, particularly an elderly person with Alzheimer's, starts to develop Alzheimer's and how physiologically it reacts. It's quite intriguing because there's something, for instance, called a Babansky um, uh, uh, instinct, whereby if you stroke the bottom of the foot of a very young child or a very young baby, the foot curls inwards. After a certain time, if you then stroke it, it curls outwards. It's one way or the other, but it's different. Is this what they call club foot? No, no, no. This is different. If you just take the foot of a baby, so you have an infant and you literally just stroke the underside of the foot, what will happen is the the foot will either move inwards towards you or move outwards. The toes will splay outwards. It's called the the, the Bansky reaction. Okay. Now, what is intriguing is this disappears when the child is about a year old. But people who have Alzheimer's, and again, as far as I know, I'm the only person that's drawn this conclusion in relation to this particular relationship, Mm -hmm. is that when people have Alzheimer's and when they are semi-catatonic in the later stages, the Babansky stimulus comes back again. So for me, you can watch as you I watched my mother doing this Mm -hmm. as she got deeper and deeper into Alzheimer's. She became more and more fetal. She started to move into a fetal position. She became childlike. Then she was if she was going in reverse Mm. from an adult back to being an embryo. Mm. And it's as if there's this total reversal. Now, again, this is known as neonatalism. And it's a known physiological effect, but nobody really has explained why it takes place. Now, I argue it's because you are literally going back to the womb. And the point of death, what happens is you literally go back to the womb and you're reborn again. And this is evidential that I use in my books. And in fact, it's wonderful you've reminded me about this because Mm. this really needs to be included in my new book, which I'd forgotten to include. So thank you for this. I need to make <laughs> okay. a note of this. Just- Something good came out of that. Yeah, that's great. But, uh, you know, our materialist would obviously uh, resort to the cling, to the, it's not even an explanation, it's just an excuse that these are figment of our imagination. Oh, of course, that's not explaining anything. Of course it doesn't. <laughs> right? It's not explaining. I, I call it the labeling theory of explanation. Right. The idea is, you know, there is a term in, in medical terms, you have something like uh, idiopathic epilepsy. And people think, oh, I've got idiopathic epilepsy. Oh, well, I've now got a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Whereas you haven't, because the word idiopathic actually means we haven't got a clue. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how that's how it works it we does. have nice little labels yeah and if we can give them a nice latin or greek phrase absolutely we've explained it like hallucinations it's an hallucination yeah we see this in a placebo experiment that it helps the placebo effect <laughs> if you can give it a fancy medical sounding name 
Yeah. If they give it something fancy, it helps. It adds to the suggestion. And the mystique of control. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and this could be taken out in so many areas, politics, everything. But let's stick to the matter at hand. The bright ones will already be able to draw those lines. But if we stick to the matter at hand, we see that whatever takes part in our brain just messes with the filtering of the mm. vibrations we perceive because it is a fact. Even though it has very little attention in modern science, it had much more attention in uh, older science, especially pre-World War II science, and that is that all five senses are, popularly speaking, you could say there are windows to to the mm. ocean of vibrations out there, but they are just limiting frequencies of the entire uh, electromagnetic specter. And, of course, if it wasn't for our technological, mechanical innovations, we could dismiss anything but what, you know, in the old days, they said, I only believe what I can see. Mm. Today, that's like the climax of superstition, because we know that <laughs> most of the things we can't see, like x-ray machines are developed yeah. precisely because we can't perceive directly into that field, but we can with the help of technology. So then, if we agree that we have five senses that are just limiting the range of perception, then we know, okay, most of the universe, because everything is vibrations, energy in different kinds of yeah. vibrational state, uh, amplitude, uh, frequency, all this stuff. But if we agree about that, then we have to ask the question, could there be life forms existing in some of these ranges of some of these frequencies of hertz that we cannot mm -hmm. directly perceive with our senses and i mean this is this is an old question but until recently i saw that answered because i, I wish i researched that before we talk today i should have it ready actually my bad but i saw a popular science article where they say that they now have photographed Entities, as they call them, I, I, I guess they are looking at them as nothing else, uh, no, nothing more than primitive organisms like bacteria or whatever. But they've taken photos of entities in, I think it's, I don't know where in the electromagnetic scale this was. I'm, I'm guessing it's either right above uh, ultraviolet or right below infrared. I, I suppose it would be mm. close to the visual range. So... First off, are you familiar with this uh, scientific discovery? I, I saw I saw something about it a few days ago, and I need to follow up on this. That's a synchronicity because totally. it's a year ago I saw it. <laughs> yeah, no, literally, it was only a few days ago, so it came up in my Facebook feed. Okay. Now, one of the things here, there are two or three things that are immediately leaped to mind here. One of the ones that um, there was a, a wonderful description that I came across many years ago by the, the British esoteric writer Rainer Johnson. And he it was a wonderful analogy of, of how perception works. And he said, it's like we've all spent all our lives in the top of one of those Irish round towers in play. I don't know if you've seen there's some in Glendalough in Ireland and things. It's like a round tower, like the Rapunzel Tower you, know, oh, okay. that you have in fairy tale myth. Yep. And we live at the top of that tower. And in the top of the tower, there are five windows, which are our senses. And we perceive reality through those five windows. When somebody has 
an esoteric experience or what I would argue when, and we can touch upon this in one of my previous books, I discussed something I call the Huxleyan spectrum. That when somebody moves along the Huxleyan spectrum, their doors of perception are opened wider. Right. And it's rather analogous to them finding that there's a trap door in the roof and they take the, go out of the room and they perceive reality as it really is infinite. Now, that's the first point I'd like to make. Now, in one of my books, uh, I, I worked hard on this analogy because one of the things I do in my books is I do the science, but I try to explain the science in a way that a normal person would appreciate the subtleties of it. Good. And I try to explain about this what I call, and you quite might like this, you may not, or you might, I call it electromagnetic chauvinism. <laughs> and it's, and it's, again, it's, it's a peak term. It's got a little registered trademark on there. It's one of my terms. And electromagnetic chauvinism is the idea that we believe that whatever we are given to by our senses, particularly our visual senses, is what's literally out there. Right. And I said, now let's just extrapolate from this. The electromagnetic spectrum from uh, gamma rays to to radio waves, mm. for argument's sake, mm -hmm. um, imagine that as a kind of a, a river from one end to the other. And imagine that river is the, the Mississippi River in America, which rises in a small lake in Minnesota, runs down through the central of the United States and comes out in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. If that was the electromagnetic spectrum, as we understand it to be, our own visual field that we believe is a radical one-to-one -one relationship with what is externally out there is one and a half inches, about 18 miles south of Hannibal, Missouri. Right. Okay. Right. A very good point. And that is exactly the size of what we believe we're perceiving. Now, I've argued and I call the, the, the states that we, we abut upon in terms of our perceptions, you know, the liminal states. Yeah. It's, it's something called al-mithral by the Sufis. I think there was Sorabindi, who I think was a Sufi saint. Sorabindi came up with this term, and it, it's very much relating to the writings of uh, Henri. Um, oh, Jesus. What was this? Uh, oh, it'll come to me. It's mm -hmm. a French Sufi writer. He was a, a French person, but he was a Sufi writer. Oh, René Guénon? No. Um, oh, Henri. Oh, Henri Corbin. Corbin. Henri yeah. Corbin. Yeah. Henri Corbin. And. His descriptions of this al-Mithral is really quite intriguing. And Corbin was really fascinated by this because this is where they believe that the jinn come from, okay, mm. in, in, in Islamic belief. And I was particularly interested in the book about the concept of jinn because if you read the Quran, it says that the jinn were created by smoke, from smokeless fire. Allah created men out of mud. He created the angels out of Ur, I think, and he created the the jinn out of smokeless fire. Hmm. Now, to me, what how what would we in modern science understand smokeless fire to be? Plasma. Plasma. Yeah. Plasma. Yeah. You got it spot on, Al. That shows how attuned you are. Yeah. yeah. Plasma. <laughs> yeah. And I believe that these entities are a form of plasma. Right. Um, and they they use plasma. To come through, because of course, plasma to, to manifest. So, to manifest. so it's not a natural state of habitation. But if they are uh, communicating without three D world, they need obviously some kind of vehicle, Correct. and that's when they use primer material or plasma as their as their manifestation point. Is that is that what you're yes, saying? Yes, that's the point, mm. and it's very much something that's been suggested by an American researcher uh, called Paulino. 
And in Paulino's books, he calls them parasites. Mm. And he argues, and he has, he has done lots of work. He's been researching this for, for the last 30 or 40 years. He's an ex-Roman Catholic priest who now does research in these things. And some of his material is really intriguing. It's the idea that they feed upon fear. Right. And that by generating fear in us, that is their nutrition. So that's why they create these scenarios where we have visceral fear. And it's a very intriguing idea. And we know also from magic that uh, the only way black magic can work is, especially stuff like voodoo, is if the recipient already has fear. If you're ignorant like a skeptic and a materialist are the best, they are best protected than everyone because their ignorance of stuff <laughs> makes them very bad recipients of curses and, and stuff like that according to the magical paradigm. Right. So this makes sense, you know. Yeah, because it is, the more it's when you think about it, it's when you drill deeper. My overall philosophy has always been that there are three levels of understanding. Mm -hmm. There's the naive understanding of people who believe everything right. and anything that's told them, right, and they right. just believe it. Yeah. Then you start to get scientific, and you start to look at the science, but you do it in a very surface way. You know, I was using... Label way, yeah. Labeling again. Mm. Again, that was the point I was going to make, mm. that what we do is we then believe in the labels. And I particularly, in one of my books, um, Opening the Doors of Perception, particularly focus in on the mystique of hallucinations. Now, again, you know, you, there will always be the explanation, and it's the pat explanation. Oh, it was an hallucination. Let's think about this for a second. And by definition, a hallucination is something that you perceive perceive that nobody else perceives what like your own personality like the taste of curry like the color red mm. these are all qualia mm. that doesn't mean they're not real just because nobody else shares them with you pain is another qualia that you don't share with other people doesn't mm. mean it's not real in its sense that you perceive it now on top of this then you then get the idea that an hallucination is something that's unique to you and then what they do, it's very clever. If two people share an hallucination, they have a wonderful label for this as well. They call it a folly a mm. And they turn, oh, we've explained it now. We've called it a folly a mm. How they explain how two independent minds can, can perceive the same set of circumstances suggests telepathy. So they're effectively using one thing they don't believe in to explain another thing they don't believe exactly, in. Exactly. So already they're digging their own grave in terms of their logic. <laughs> but then we go further. If a group of people collectively see an hallucination, such as the sun dancing in the sky at Fatima. But that's an oxymoron. Yes. A mass psychosis. It, it, exactly. It, right. You've got it absolutely right. The idea, by it's a contradiction in terms. How can group minds come together? But of course, we would say group minds are an egregorial yeah, mind yeah. and they're creating egregores. We'll get to that later. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. And all I'm saying is that, so it's not an explanation at all, but for the layperson, they who 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 feels that science understands everything nod their heads and think it's correct but of course we know from quantum physics that particles can be in two places at the same time mm -hmm. we know that particles seem to know they're being seen we know that the act of measurement or act of observation turns a statistical wave function into a point particle 
And we know this, you know, and in my books, I've discussed this in great detail. And, and that they're connected across time and space. And of course, yeah. superposition in time and space. Mm. What, is the, what is the format whereby they can communicate instantaneously? Now, again, you know, 1981 at the, the Paris Institute of Optics, three researchers, Roger, Dalibird and Aspey, did a series of experiments which proved something called Bell's inequality. And Bell's inequality was something that was suggested by a guy called John Bell, who was a Northern Irish quantum physicist at CERN. Mm. And Bell was aware of something called the EPR paradox, the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen thought experiment that was put together i think in 1937 by isaac by albert hang on is this the einstein rosen bridge no no this is different i can come on to einstein rosen bridges in a second but just to explain that einstein never accepted a lot of the elements of quantum physics god doesn't uh, play dice yes god doesn't play dice he he believed in what he called the hidden variables that at a deeper level that at a deeper level of reality everything comes back to being normal again mm. all the weird things that happen in quantum physics the the um the schrodinger's cat idea the idea of the of the, the mysteries of measurement mm. the whole ideas that came out of copenhagen in the 1920s the niels bohr and associates yeah. he didn't accept and he continually kept coming up with thought experiments to disprove and at the one of the Solvay conferences in in Brussels, he came up with a series of thought experiments that that Bohr managed to to disprove. Mm. But in desperation, in the late 1930s, he teed together with two associates called um, Rosen, um, um, Rosen and Podolsky, to uh, a Russian guy. Mm. They came up with a thought experiment, which I won't go into detail about now. But they they thought that they disproved and shown the illogicality of the idea that particles only come into existence when they are observed, okay, Mm. i.e. that the moon doesn't exist if you don't looking at it, I suppose. Mm. Now, they came up with this thought experiment to dis and disprove the idea of the direct relationship between conscious observation and subatomic particles. In 19, I think it was 1964, John Bell started looking into this and he did a mathematical structure uh, called Bell's inequality. And Mathematically, he proved that Einstein was wrong. But of course, nobody at that time had the technology available to do the experiment in reality. Mm, mm. In 1981, late 1981, the three French scientists set up a desktop experiment and proved that Einstein was wrong, which meant effectively that there is instantaneous communication between subatomic particles. Now, that should have been headlines around the world. It was the most incredible scientific experiment ever. But 99.999% of people have no idea it's happening. Yeah, yeah. But on top of this, in recent years, there is um, a, an Austrian researcher called Anton Zeilinger, who was originally at the University of Innsbruck and is now at the University of Vienna. Zeilinger has been implying this concept of superposition of particles. And he, he is discovering the most amazing things. For instance, recent research has shown that not just electrons or photons or atoms have this kind of weird communication and wave particle duality, the idea that sometimes it's a wave and then yeah. it's a particle. Yeah. They found that molecules do this. Like, mm. for instance, buckyballs that have 60 different atoms in them but the latest ones and the latest research molecules with 800 atoms in them 
have been found to come into existence when they are measured or observed. And beforehand, they literally do not exist except as a statistical wave function. Hang on, hang on, hang on. If this is true, then the weirdness of the quantum level is not limited to the quantum level. Then those things should statistically also happen at our level of perception because that's where molecules are entering in. Correct. And what is even more weird is that I was doing the calculation in angstroms, which are the the, the measurements that you use for um, these particles. Mm. The latest molecules are about the third of the size of a virus. And they still have not found the highest level where this direct relationship between the act of observation and the act of coming into existence stops. Hmm. And there is arguments to say it never stops. And the fact that, and this is in my latest book, the thing I'll be applying, is that in fact, is everything that we perceive, are we collapsing our own wave function of our own realities? In which case then, the whole nature of reality then starts to warp and change doesn't it? Yeah, I have to comment here and bring the listeners in because okay. this concept, it's revolutionary that they actually have scientific experiments indicating it because it's actually an old concept but it's got a renaissance now that the small-minded materialists are starting to be able to do real philosophy for the first time in their life. Why? Because of the movie Matrix and because of modern I would say neo-gnostic concepts like Elon Musk and many other entertains, namely that we're in a computer game uh, simulation, right? Mm. And because of that analogy, they're now starting to be able to entertain basic philosophy. And according to that uh, simulation computer game kind of model of explaining, then it's like, imagine a real computer game. Now, we know, obviously, that if you're playing at level one, level two doesn't exist. It's just potential ones and zeros until you enter that chamber or whatever in the game where you reach that level. Then it manifests to you because your avatar, in the modern meaning of the word avatar, yes. is is now present there. And then you left the other level which doesn't exist anymore. And that's like you're bringing your attention through cosmos and it manifests as you move along. And in theosophy, who of course stole this from older tradition, it's called Fuhat. So it's actually an old concept, but it's right. getting a renaissance now. But I didn't know about this uh, researching into it. It's brilliant. But I have to make two brief additional comments and then give you back the reins okay. here. Yep. One, just commend you about these three levels of mind because it's so obvious when you say it, <laughs> but somebody <laughs> has to point it out, right? The emperor has no clothes. Yes. Uh, I mean, I kind of knew it, but I didn't organize it like that. You're so right. That is the three levels of insight from naivism to labelism to nuances, which are hopefully the level we are discussing on now. Uh, so that's that. But when it comes to labelism, folks, just remember what I said in another show, which is exactly what Anthony now is saying. Hesedal, you know they have UFO experiments there, right? Scientific. Yeah, oh yes. This is the, this is the spinning thing that you have on your website, your symbol. Uh, no, actually that's from the, called the... 
uh, remember the Obama got the peace prize and while he was here mm-hmm. there was this weird Norway spiral as they call it ah uh, that was the Norway spiral yes, yes exactly. I thought it was. I was I'm confusing the two sorry yeah 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 please but, go on but you know about Hasidol and yes because it's scientific research into it it's it's making a huge problem because our country as progressive as it likes to uh, pretend it is when it comes to anything spiritual or paranormal we completely secular collectively speaking and so you can't have you know ufos being a real thing so what they do the newspapers is that every five years or so they come out like the last time they oh, now now it's explained now we know what it is oh brilliant science because it's just and then they come with the labels that doesn't explain anything. It's electromagnetic phenomenons is one of the mm. go-to terms they like to try to dismiss this with. <laughs> it doesn't explain anything. No. They're just putting labels that the man in the street can... Re- oh, okay. Uh, innovation. Oh, I, oh, what an enlightened time I live in. And then move <laughs> on, right? That's how it works. And that's how it's always worked in popular science. And that's why I've argued that the most spiritual or innovative philosophical-minded scientists are actually those who study hard science, like physics. Mm. And, and, you know, at the top level of physics, they're not materialists at all. That's where you find the... You have Taoists, Buddhists, Pythagoreanists. Where do you find the materialists? Usually those who are occupied with the studies of the mind, like psychology and psychiatry. Mm. Isn't that ironic, Anthony, Isn't it just? that those who study physics are spiritual and those who study the mind are materialists? Well, look, Erwin Schrodinger, his book, What is Life? Right, right. You look at the people like John Wheeler and Max, uh, various, various quantum physicists. Whenever they are faced with it, they become profoundly spiritual. There's a wonderful term, and I presume, I don't know if it, it translates well into Norwegian, uh-huh. but hubris. Right. Uh, you know, hubris, you know, this state of congratulatory we understand everything mm. you know and we know that whenever pride before a fall we know that what the science they are creating now is built upon nothing it is built upon the idea that the big bang just massively and in my new book i'll be discussing this okay. supposedly uh, the period of inflation that took place in the first few microseconds is there purely and simply to explain the observed things we see now it's just so stories. The English writer Rudyard Kipling had a thing called just so stories, and you know, like the mm. elephant got its trunk. And modern science is like this. They back create to explain the observed phenomenon without yeah, at the lower level, I would say. Yeah. Without looking at it. Now, one of the things that clearly because you're comparatively new to my work and have not read some of my earlier books, I will guarantee that you know the analogy where you were using mm-hmm. about the computer game. Yeah. My work's going to blow your socks off, believe me. (laughs) It's going to blow your head off Mm -hmm. because this is exactly what I propose is life. But on top of this, I do the science. I take their science Mm -hmm. and use it against them. Mm. And funnily enough, one of the things that is a funny thing that takes place in my life is on at least three occasions I've been invited to debate my ideas with material reductionists Mm -hmm. and skeptics. Mm -hmm. Every time they back down at the last minute. Do you know why? Because they look into you, right? Because, yeah, they look into me and suddenly it is, oh, shoot. (laughs) Oh, my God. This guy understands 
understands Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Mm. I'm not sure I understand Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Mm. Um, you know, that I understand Pauli's exclusion principle. I understand why it is that zero point energy exists. Right. I know the idea and the principles behind a lot of quantum physics. I don't understand it because nobody does. Mm. As Richard Feynman said, nobody understands quantum physics. All you do is you work. As they used to say, shut up and calculate. Exactly. Uh, you know, but the thing is, my argument is that there is growing evidence now from cosmology that this is – I hate using the term simulation because that implies it's a copy of something else. Yeah. It's not. The, the, well, 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 Hermes said, as above, so below. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it is the case that they are now discovering. And it, again, I always blow people out the water about this, that the very last paper that um, Stephen Hawking wrote mm -hmm. was a paper with a guy called Frank, uh, no, uh, not Frank Hartle, uh, Thomas Hertog of CERN. Mm -hmm. And they came up with a concept they called the top-down hypothesis of quantum physics. And this, this model suggests that the outcome of every possible decision that you can make or every subatomic particle makes is already out there in potentiality. Mm. The only reason the reality we experience happens the way it does is we collapse the wave function of what we our expectations are. But everything else is also there in potentiality. And this is an application of the, the um, a very interesting idea that Richard Feynman came up with, where he argued that every subatomic particle effectively follows every path. It's called the sum over histories. And the idea is that every subatomic particle follows every possible path between point A to point B. Wow. And it's, it leaves and it arrives, but in between it follows every path. Now, this is Richard Feynman. This is not some crazed new age mm. guru. This is Richard Feynman. Mm. Okay. Mm. Now, what is really intriguing and what's coming out now and again in my books, and I really genuinely think, I may be proved wrong, but I think I'm the only person writing about this in the world okay. that's pulling these things together. Yeah. If you look at what um, Richard uh, uh, Dawkins and his associates were working on, it's something to do with black holes. And the mystery of black holes is a simple one. It's the second law of thermodynamics. If the universe is an enclosed system, and I take my laptop or even I take my mobile phone and I throw it into a black hole. Mm -hmm. Effectively, information is lost within an enclosed system. Now, they've recently discovered that... Uh, except those might be holes into other dimensions. So uh, Yes, they could be. Mm. But at the moment, if it's an enclosed system, mm. if it's not a white hole the other side. But let's just use the analogy. Okay. What they are arguing is that what happens, and this gets really freaky, is that if you throw your phone into a black hole, effectively it splits into two. It splits into the phone that goes into the black hole, but the information that encodes that phone, the digital information, the bits, are smeared out along the edge of the black hole. Mm. And they continue to exist in a smeared out two-dimensional information field they then have extrapolated from this to say that if that is the case let's do a calculation and this is really interesting what they did was they calculated the idea that the universe from the moment of the big bang 13.7 billion years ago 
the universe expands out like an expanding balloon. Okay, so you visualize an expanding balloon expanding out in all directions, mm. which means that we are the, on the in the inside of this huge sphere. Okay, mm. imagine the inside surface of the sphere, and imagine that at each point of that sphere, there are little point particles or point units which are, are Planck squares. That is the Planck length square. The Planck length is the smallest bit of space time that you can imagine. Mm. So imagine that it's just dotted with these tiny things and each one of these fires out one bit of information into the, into the universe. Mm. They've calculated that the amount of information that would be needed to encode the universe is exactly the same number of Planck length particle bits that are on the inner surface of the universe. And they said this is too coincidental. This suggests that we are existing in what we think is a three-dimensional reality, but is in fact a two-dimensional projection from the edges of the universe. Now, hmm. again, people will turn around and say, oh, that is complete nonsense. And all I'll say is, just read it up. There's a guy called Craig Hogan at the moment at the Perimeter Institute in Canada who's doing research to find the pixelation of space. This is where. Wait, wait a minute. Are these the same researchers? I read a popular magazine, uh, science article a year or two ago where they, there were some top researching scientists or mathematics or whatever who claimed that we were avatars projected from the beyond the universe or something. I, I, I mean, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, no, that's it. That's it. That's the same okay. thing. Yeah, it's the idea there's a projection inwards. Right. And right. We're actually two dimensional, but we think we're three dimensional. Okay. Now, the, they were using the uh, the Geo, GEO 6000 gravity wave device in southern Germany, and they were using that to try and pick up the pixelation. They failed initially, but Hogan and his team are still continuing with this because they still believe this is the best explanation. Wow. Now, before I go on, now, in my first book, Is There Life After Death? The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die, I argue that at the point of death, we move into an alternate reality, which is our own life, a computer simulation of our life. Mm. We are existing, all of us, in a literal recreation of our lives, which is a, like a computer game, whereby every outcome of every decision is already programmed into the game. Not only that, but there's part of you that's your game player. You know, you were talking about you play a game. Yeah. Imagine the scenario. You're playing a computer game. You switch the computer game on. What happens is your on-screen sprite, whatever the thing is you use to play the game, it gets born for the first time. And it, it's suddenly it's born. What you do is then you move that creature down. I use the analogy of Lara Croft in, in yep. um, Tomb Raider. Mm -hmm. So imagine Lara's there. She gets reborn. She, she has no memory of anything other than this life that she's got in the machine. You then start Lara moving, and she thinks she's moving herself, but you're moving her. She moves down the corridor, goes into a room. And there's a big monster in there. The monster comes out and kills her. She's dead. She's gone. She's forgotten. But the game player remembers the last yeah. game you just played. Reincarnation. Mm. Yeah, goes back to the start and recreates another Lara Croft. A new one mm. with no memory. Mm. But she finds she's walking down the corner. And for some reason, she doesn't go into that room. And she doesn't no. know why. Mm. Just something tells her. She goes into another room and gets killed. Brilliant. Now, what I believe is this is what is happening. We have a being we, I call the daemon. The daemon is the game player. Mm. This is, again, from Gnosticism. Yep. The daemon is your immortal self. Mm. The Edelon 
is the on-screen sprite that lives within the program of your life. Sprite? A sprite is just the te- the technical term that's used in English to describe um, an avatar, I suppose. Oh, okay, an avatar. Yeah. Okay. okay. Mm. So the in the in game. Mm. Now, I argue that in the final split seconds of your life, you live your life over and over and over again, like a Groundhog Life. The yeah. Russian edition of my first book was called Groundhog Life. Now, I then do the evidence for this, big evidence, deja vu sensations. But but wait a minute, this is horrible. If if it's in repeat, if it's stuck. No, no, no. No, this is the point that people miss with my hypothesis. Okay. It's not in repeat. Do you remember the movie Groundhog Day? Yeah, yeah. Now, remember, he doesn't live the same day over and over again. No, he has to find the, the pattern code to get out. Yeah, he, yeah. he lives, the, as far as he is concerned, every day is different because he changes it. That's true. Every day is different because he makes different decisions. Mm. Okay? Mm. So this is what I argue, is that you are reincarnated as you and you live your life over and over again, but you change it. But not only that, but the, the circumstances of your birth could be different. Because, Al, r- recall the, the circumstances of your birth. Your parents got together. Your parents could have chosen to have emigrated to Australia. Mm. They could have emigrated to the United States. Mm. They could have gone a mi- in, in an infinite world. They could have gone to an infinite amount of places. So, and that decision goes right back, th- right through history to every single ancestor you've had jesus that's complex man so it means that effectively we can fulfill anything once our daemon guides us but our daemon can only guide us if the daemon itself has experienced that life previously Mm. and it can only do that if it's run through the game now deja vu sensations i feel i've been here before yep i can explain that tick precognitions Mm. tick I can explain that because a precognition is the fact that you have memories or your daemon has memories of past lives. The voice in the head that guides, guides people, spirit guides, tick, it's your daemon. So super experienced players would be uh, the masters, like the avatars in Correct. the classical sense, Jesus, stuff like that. They would, I call them bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas? They are people. Yeah, it, it's an Indian term for yeah, somebody yeah. who, after you know, many incarnations, chooses to come back. To help their fellow human beings, yeah. they exist. They are they are the elite. They are masters. They, they so, so the masters are the good guys. But then you have obviously um, what's his uh, Mister Anderson. What was he called? Um, oh yes, in the, the uh, in uh, Mister Smith in um, Agent Smith. Exactly, Agent so Smith. So who are they? They the, the, I call them the caco demons. Okay. And in my latest research, I'm I'm working with a group of individuals on this as to what these the negativities are. And I argue that and again, I come back to esoteric belief systems that, you know, in esoteric belief systems, you need to find your own higher self. You need to find the God within. And this is why an awful lot of people in particularly Western esoteric traditions are really intrigued by my ideas. I get regularly communicated to by esotericists. I I subscribe to that uh, appeal. Yeah. Mm, Go on. Who've come across my work and and they're going, oh my God, this guy's doing it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, but I'm doing it from a different point of view. So now we have the situation that I argue that at a higher level of reality, we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively, which is again coming down to esoteric traditions. Yes. The idea that we are we are embodied godheads, or we are the godhead that's embodied and suffering from what Plato called amnesis. Mm. 
what Philip K. Dick called amnesis as well, because I've written a biography of Philip K. Dick, the American science fiction writer. And what Dick was arguing, he wrote a book called The Divine Invasions. And in that, the character Manny, who's a young boy, is God. Yeah, Manny. Do you know the book? He's the young (laughs) boy. No, but I I know who he bases his character on. Manichaeism, Manny, right? Of course. And Manny, yeah. Manny, in my first book, I have a whole section on Manny. Okay. What did Manny say? Manny argued that he met his Al-Twam, his twin. Hmm. And Al-Twam guided him through his life. Manichaeism, which as you, you and I will know, but probably many of the listeners won't, is a derivative of Gnosticism. It's Gnosticism that was in Persia. Hmm. Okay. And Manny was a fascinating man. And then you get from there, you get the Bogomils. Mills. You get the Cathari in southern France. You get the, the yeah, yeah. We've been through all this in all the shows. The history of narcissism. Okay, the Albigensian heresy. Yeah, all of that. I again argue. I can explain what their belief systems were. For instance, I believe that the parfait within the Albigensian heresy. Mm-hmm. The reason they were parfait is because they knew the things I'm talking about. They knew about the daemon. Mm. They knew about these things. And that's why they were persecuted by standard Christianity. This is what Gnostics believe. Gnosticism, you look at Gnosticism, they have the daemon and the Adalog. These are concepts that are in Gnosticism. Yeah, well, here we have to uh, inject something. But first of all, monarchism went all the way to China. Uh, but mm, it did, didn't it? But yeah. did, uh, wait a minute, before I comment, did you explain Agent Smith to us? No, what I said was that, the, yeah, I, I was going down the route, wasn't I, to yeah. explain that there has to be as we know, within there has to be the role of the demiurge, mm-hmm. Yaldabaoth, mm-hmm. the idea that there is the half maker, the person that in many ways may be in some ways responsible indirectly for the illusionary reality we live within. You know, the, the, yeah, yeah, the, but could you put him into the, the simulation model? We know him from, from the traditions, but how do you translate it into the computer game? That, that maybe it is an element of our own selves, maybe because you need darkness to see light. Okay. Because it's the question, isn't it, of the existence of evil. So it's a Saturn function. Yes. It's there to, we, we are hating it because we see the obstacle, but we don't understand the obstacle is to help us, give us challenge. Right? Well, it's the old term, isn't it? The old term of Satan adversary. Yeah. The yeah. idea that you need an adversary in order to make things work. Now, again, going back to the embodiment of the Godhead, Mm. and I'm not original thinker on this, but there is still the idea that if there is a, a, if at its base level, everything is consciousness, Mm. which I believe it is consciousness and information. Everything is consciousness processing information that whatever is the collective consciousness of everything, what um Jung would call the collective unconscious mm. or what all religions call the idea of in in Hinduism the idea of Brahman mm. you know the idea of the, this or the or ain sof within the Kabbalah mm. so the idea is there is this kind of intelligence entity which is pure consciousness it's got all eternity to exist so what does it do? It has to have something to give itself purpose so it creates and hallucination, it creates a reality, mm. then embeds itself in the reality, having forgotten what it is. Mm. And it lives everybody's lives simultaneously. And it's like it's living in its own, own soap opera. Yep. And, but it has to have forgotten what it is in order 
to live it correctly. It doesn't need to know who it is. And the daemon is the link between the overconsciousness that knows itself and the unconscious Edelon that doesn't. And the daemon is the middle, the middle ground between the two. It knows both. And again, we know this from Gnosticism and everything else as well. So if that makes sense to you. Absolutely. And uh, uh, then uh, because what boring game it would be if there was no challenges, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Lara Croft has to meet some kind of resistance in order to get better. And to tie the more classical philosophical perspective of what you just said in, we can, for example, use Kabbalah, where you have the concept of Ayer, Asher, Ayer. So I am is God before, and you know, just realizing it exists as pure consciousness, as nous, as the Greeks said, everything in one, mm -hmm. the monad, then breathing out, as the Indians would say, uh, creating the universe, and then it becomes Usher, that, not I am anymore, now it's objectified, that, but, wow. but at that level, it has forgotten itself, so it has to go back to ayer, right? And when it goes back to ayer again, that's ayer, usher, ayer, then it remembers that, oh, you know, it's going back to where it began, right? It's a circle completed, so I've been through matter, I've been through the objectification, I'm coming back to the subject. Ooh, wow. Yeah, no, that's just, that's not me, that's the classical ancient thought. I have a very and good. that's exactly what you said. It's just summed up in those three words. Yes. Now, let's move on here, because, you know, I was starting this show by thinking we're going to take on the invisible creatures, but of course, we went all the way to the end line, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> Paradigms, that's okay. It's kind of changed the nature of the show I was thinking about but I still want to poke in one important thing because if what or everything you said and, and for those who have followed us so far if we just say that okay th this is how it is then there's a very important question or issue we have to take face on because it's the direct consequence of what you said and that is that in such a existence as this it kind of raises the age-old question of free will mm. because if everything is potential in existence and if we have a purpose to be here obviously to get a better as a better player the daemon has to learn through the avatar the mistakes then we have to ask ourselves for example could i now influence my reality by you know by doing some of the techniques or just expecting a different reality and if this is true it kind of explains why not just in the old day like in the medieval ages why the catholics ceased not just other ideas but they also ceased any scripture that could tell you how to influence reality especially magic yes that's right and then put out a controlling narrative because if every john smith and his grandma has the same power as a jesus or a buddha or a pythagoras that means that if i'm on a power trip because my ego is so big i have to stop everyone else from influencing this reality how can i stop them from influencing the reality well i control their paradigm. Yes, exactly. And I control them by fear. I control them by dogmas. And I've always said that if you really uh, want to control, you know, as above, so below. So let's go below first and use a subjective example before we extrapolate it to the collective. Now, if I want to control you, Anthony, force or 
extortion or manipulation or seduction or bribery is not as effective. Nothing is as effective as if I remove your memory. Mm-hmm. That's amnesia. It's the most effective way I can control you because I don't even have to do anything. But when you wake up, but tell you whatever I want you to believe. Yeah. And that's kind of what the Catholics have done, not just them, but every power structure in history that imposes itself, you know, anti-gnosticism basically, Excellent. imposes itself upon the collective. And so they harvest that energy, the creative output, especially by fear. And then they are uh, driving the narrative. Your comment. Very good. I like that. I can actually take really into that. And I think it is interesting that if we do have power to manipulate our environment, you're quite right. That the, There has to be ways to stop us doing this. And if, because it's one of the things that myself and my associates have discussed for many years, you know, that are we hacking the matrix mm. by doing the work we're doing? Um, and are we pointing out that there will be some kind of sudden collective realization that this reality is not what it seems and we break out of it in some way? And I genuinely don't know. But what I do know is from my studies of history, you know, that we know the way in which religion rather than spirituality controls belief systems. And uh, for instance, one of the things I was thinking about when you were discussing there was about the choices of the what became scripture within the canonical Bible and the idea of the exclusion of things like the Book of Enoch and way in which the Book of Enoch was not considered to be canonical and was dangerous and therefore we did not become part of the Christian canon. Mm. Whereas it is is part of the Christian canon in Ethiopia, for instance, where the book of Enoch still is there. And if you look at the book of Enoch, what does it talk about? It talks about egregorials and it talks about entities that seemingly came from somewhere else that, that seeded with human women in some way in uh, at whether where, where they came down on Mount Hermon, didn't they? Mm. And they landed on Mount Hermon. And of course they were known as the watchers and in Greek watcher is egregorus. Mm. So therefore we have a direct link here with our concept of egregores and watchers. Mm. And then it's the idea of coming back full circle almost now is that if we can create thought forms within this universe, What else can we create by mind power? And if everything comes down to information and the brain or our consciousness is what produces the physicality of reality around us, we can choose what we can create because we know this from the twin slit experiments and the, the double slit experiment. We know that there is seemingly a direct relationship between the act of attention of a consciousness on subatomic particles and their existence or non-existence. Mm. So it is only a matter of time before we can harness this ability to mold the reality around us. But then the issue is that if we're all molding our own reality in our own likeness, we then fall into solipsism because it means effectively we are creating our own reality in our own way. Mm. But I think these days, and one of the things that I was discussing with some of my associates recently was why it is that it's only now that my work is starting to break through 
And it's only now that I'm I'm now in you know I'm I'm 67 in April. Oh. so I'm an old old guy. Okay, and not not in the perspective we're discussing, but okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. But I'm an old guy, so I'd always thought, well, if I'd written my books when I was in my 20s or 30s, right. But people wouldn't have got it. No, no. You know, you've got to be in the world of virtual reality. Mm. You know, I have a, an Oculus virtual reality headset, which I use sometimes, you know, to, to, to get across to people the idea of what really is reality. Why do you believe that what you're seeing out there is any more real than the world you go into when you take put on a virtual reality headset? Mm. And if you were born within a virtual reality, from the moment of your birth, you would never know that you were in a virtual reality. And it's the same argument I use with dreaming. There's lots of people I work with who lucid dream. There are people who have out-of-the-body experiences, people who train people to have out-of-the-body experiences. I've got other people I'm working with at the moment who are working with dimethyltryptamine mm. and researching hallucinogenic substances and entheogens. Mm. I believe that all these things can be linked. I feel sometimes that I have all the pieces of a huge jigsaw puzzle. Mm. And all I have to do is to put the pieces together. And again, I'm being vain here. But again, I think I'm the only person that's got all the pieces, that, that's looking at all these pieces. Mm. And it's because I'm completely eclectic in my thinking. Mm. I don't reserve myself. If something in cosmology interests me, I'll follow it through. But I'll follow it through down to the maths. Yeah, that's that's what I love with you. You're not siloed at all. You have all No, these... I was trying to, treat, to, to teach myself matrix mechanics mm. in order to understand uh, Heisenberg. And why Heisenberg came up with the maths he did. Mm. Um, and it's only by doing that that I feel that we can find answers. You know, mm. people are too siloed. I mean, my friends who have done PhDs have followed down a rigid path and they don't move from that path. Whereas I've said, right, okay, that bit of Gnosticism there is interesting. What about the Huna tradition mm. in Hawaii? What does the Huna tradition tell us? Mm. What about the 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 the, the Biengbo and the Temi, which are a, a belief system of some tribes in the coastlands of Nigeria? Mm. They have exactly the same concept that I have. Mm. Mm. That you live your life again, and there's part of you that has your memories. Yeah, yeah, we've beaten up on all the icoroses of the world. <laughs> Let's move on to the more interesting questions because we all agree they are lost. <laughs> Okay. So, uh, what a great conversation. Look, Absolutely. I, I see at the time that if we're going to make this, we have to take a break now. So, let's take five minutes and then hook up after the break. Okay? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be good. Okay, good. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show... You can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. <laughs> 